The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Those are verses 46 to 50 of Psalm 18, verses 21 to 50 of which are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, October the 13th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are looking today, we're finishing up the book of Jonah. We're going to read through all of chapter 3 and 4. Um, and then in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 to 27, and then also in the book of Acts, chapter 27, verses 27 to 44. There's a lot to be done today, so I'm going to have to kind of hurry. Um, and I promise, though, that tomorrow I will I'll give you a little bit of information. I'll post a, another video, uh, not video, an audio thing about Jewish belief in incarnation and reincarnation, what that means. So anyway, here we are in Jonah 3. So he has been spit out of the fish onto the dry land, vomited actually. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Well, he made a vow (laughs) to do what the Lord said, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. That's the distance across it. So you're going to walk. It would take three days to walk across the entire breadth of the city of Nineveh, which is a big, it's a big city. Jonah began to go into the city, going in a day's journey. So he, he made basically the smallest effort possible to say that he was in the city. So he goes a day's journey into it and begins to call out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now the question is, is that the entirety of Jonah's message? But most people will say, no, 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 that's not the entirety of the message, but it is sort of the, the uh, Cliff's Notes version of what Jonah said. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So we've already seen it's an exceedingly great city. It's three days across, and so now they're, they're going to call for a fast across this whole area of Nineveh. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. There's a Job kind of a sound to this. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. I mean, he's not stopping at humans. (laughs) Man or beast, herd or flock. Everything, everything is going to be under this fast. Uh, That's recognizing sin at a level you'll never see in Israel, where they're going to include everything and everybody in this fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, that's that's a biblical quote (laughs) that he makes there at the end about God returning, relenting, turning from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They took the word seriously. They believed this. Why would they do that? Doesn't that mean that this, this thing is just some apocryphal story that somebody's telling? Well, not if you understand the times a little bit. There had just been 
uh, an earthquake in the area. There had also been a solar eclipse. Nobody knew what a solar eclipse was. They thought it was a sign from God. So you've got a solar eclipse, you've got an earthquake, and they had just for the first time in quite a long while, decades, lost a battle with an enemy that cost them territory. That They might have been on high alert that, that something was amiss. And so then this foreign, goofy prophet comes and declares God's displeasure with them. They might have been actually prepared to hear it. That's the honest truth. They might have been prepared to hear this. I don't have any problem believing this. I mean, did everybody participate? Well, I have no earthly idea, but the king did order it. So we just don't know. But the reality is that that they had got that you could say God's given us three signs that there's something wrong, and now He sent a prophet to tell us exactly what that is. So when God saw what they did, that they returned, He relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and didn't do it. <laughs> but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, "Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my own country?" That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's quoting God's self-revelation from Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I mean, this sounds so much like the petulance of Elijah. When, he's, when he tells the Lord, I, even I, and the only one left who is righteous. Here, Jonah says, you know, I know what kind of God you are, but I don't want you to be that kind of God for these people. They're my enemies. You should hate them the same way I do. And I want you to destroy them. The fact that you've relented of this, I, 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 I prophesied this truthfully. And you're making me look like a fool because I told them they were going to be overthrown. It makes me look bad. I'm a crummy prophet. That's what they think. Because you didn't do this thing. And so he's furious. He, knew, he says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this is exactly what you were going to do. That's the reason I didn't even come here. That's the reason I tried to go in a different direction. You could get somebody else to do this job and look like a fool. Not me. I mean, really? He, he's ready to die now. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. So a booth is what the same thing as the, the word tabernacles in the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So it's a, it's a temporary dwelling place. And he, he's hoping, he's absolutely hoping, one thing, right, that God's going to see it his way. <laughs> and he's going to take care of Nineveh. So he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant. So he appointed a fish. Now he's appointed a plant. And it made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So, so not only does he have a little hut there, he's also got now a big vine that's growing up over the top of it to provide even more shade for him. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God's good. He's good to me. He provided this plant for me to make my life better. You can bet that with that comes some thought... <laughs> that, well, maybe this is going to turn out right. <clears throat> but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. It's called a shirako, and they're common there, and it, it makes life absolutely miserable. And the sun beat down on him in the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die <laughs> and said that it's better for me to, to die than to live. 
But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah is the only one in this situation who won't repent. He's the only, he did wrong, but he won't repent. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. It was only there for one day, and you became fully attached to it, Jonah. You thought this was going to be a forever thing? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So God's showing that, that he's concerned about these people who are formed in his image. He knows ultimately what's going to happen to Nineveh, that it will indeed be overthrown. But he says, this is a, this is a great city. There's 120,000 people there, and you want me to kill them, Jonah? That's not right. It's not okay. You should care about people, even the people that are your enemies. I mean, he's preaching the gospel to him here in so many ways. And there's also much cattle here. So God's showing, you know, that these things also matter. They matter to God. And Jonah gets a lesson, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again and again and again. I believe Jonah's the only person who could have written this. And the thing to remember is, is that when, uh, during this, this last Iraq war deal, one of the first things that happened was there was a group of iconoclasts within the Muslim world called ISIS who, did, who went to Mosul and, and destroyed a tomb. Do you know whose tomb it was? Well, it was Jonah's. Jonah was buried in Mosul. That's where Jonah's tomb was, in Iraq, in Babylon. He chose to stay. That's where Jonah died, was in that place. And Jonah is considered an important prophet even in Islam. So I believe that Jonah wrote this as a word against himself and a word to others to see and show God's concern, not just for the people of Israel, not just for the covenant people, but for all those who are created in his image. And we should not take delight in the destruction of anyone who is created in the image of God. In the um, gospel today, remember yesterday, Jesus fed 5,000. So now it happened that as he was praying alone, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old is risen. So there's this idea of incarnation, reincarnation, that says maybe John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Now Elijah is to come, right, before the Messiah. And others that one of the prophets of old is risen. So there's this belief that, that they will be resurrected, reincarnated, whatever, to come back. Then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Messiah, the anointed one, is what that means. The, the, the smeared one is actually, Christos means the smeared one, which is the anointed one. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he tells them not to, to tell anybody this, because then he tells them what's to come next. Now, the reason he's not supposed to tell them is because nobody believes that's what's going to happen. Nobody believes that's what's going to happen to Messiah. And in other uh, gospel accounts of this same thing is when Peter steps up and begins to lecture Jesus. Here, Jesus just tells him, here's what's going to happen. And, and he knows that nobody understands the prophetic words well enough to believe and to know that what's going to happen is that he'll be suffer, rejected, killed, and raised from the dead. 
So don't tell them who I am because they're going to be wildly confused if you do. And this is not going to go according to the Father's plan if you begin to tell people these things. And then he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, as I've said before, we understand the imagery here of taking up the cross and following. They, this would have been so offensive to them, it would be unbelievable. Nobody wants to take up their cross because anybody hanged on a tree is accursed by God. Nobody wants to take up a cross. It's a brutal, brutal way to die. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me, it, to us it makes perfect sense because we know that he suffered and died on the cross, but we also know that he was raised again. They had to be incredibly confused by whatever it, they thought Jesus was saying here. It couldn't have been anything that they would have understood very well. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is, is preparing them for what's to come, for him, but also for themselves. They need to know what to do in light of what will happen to him. Nope. Here's the thing. If you want to save your soul, if you want to have eternal life, then you've got to actually deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him. This is not a matter of saving your life by, by doing all the worldly things necessary to do that. No, he says it's exactly the opposite of that. You've got to lay down your life in order to save it. You've got to count it as worth less than you do. Don't worry about self-preservation. That's not the goal, because ultimately, well, you're all going to die. So get a kingdom mentality about this. Now, Paul, remember, is on the ship, and they've got all kinds of problems. They're not going to make it where they're intending to go. They're not going to get there. And Paul has said, don't worry about it, because we're going to lose. we've already lost the cargo. We're going to lose the ship, but we're not going to lose lives, if you listen to me. When the 14th night of sailing had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. Now, why did they suspect that rather than know that? Well, it's because, remember, there were no stars. That Because of the storm, there were no stars or a moon in the sky, and so they didn't have any way to navigate. During the day, he says, we didn't have a sun either. So it would have been miserable, and there would have been nothing to see. But they suspected we were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther along, they took a sounding and found 15 fathoms. So at 20 fathoms, they're 120 feet deep. Now, five less fathoms is going to put you at 90 feet. So they know they're nearing land because it's getting shallower as they go along. And fearing that we might run on the rocks because it's getting shallower, they let down four anchors from the stern, the back of the boat, and prayed for day to come. So we're going to drag along, we're going to drag these anchors, so we're not going to move swiftly into this, so that if we hit rocks, we're not going to be foundered on them, we're not going to smash against it and lose everything. No, we're going to, do, we're going to slow the boat down, and we're going to try and get to land without losing everything. Now, Paul's already said you're going to lose a ship, so, but, but they're, they're doing the right things. <clears throat> and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, 
and it lowered the sheep, ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So they've already put them down from the stern. And now what they said is, hey, we're going to put the, we're going to get in the boat. Just those of us who are sailors here, we're going to get in the boat. We're just going to get up to the bow and we're going to release the anchors from the bow. That's what we're doing. But Paul says that's not what they were doing. They were trying to escape. <clears throat> Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. In other words, ain't nobody getting off by the boat. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So he's giving them the assurance, but he's also telling them, you really need to eat something. You know, you, you're going to need some strength here. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. So he's showing his faith. He's offering this to God, and then he's showing that he has faith, that he's not going to lose his mind. He, he's going to just sit down and do a normal thing. He's not going to be crying out and screaming out like the sailors on the boat with Jonah did. No, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to eat in the midst of this storm, in the midst of all the chaos that's around me. I'm going to do a normal thing, and I'm going to give thanks to God as I do. So he did, and then they were all encouraged by his example because Paul didn't lose his mind they were able to take encouragement from that, and they ate some food themselves. And Luke tells us we were all, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So we've had everything that we think we need to eat. Now let's throw out all the provision. I mean, they're getting rid of everything. They've gotten rid of the ship's tackle. They've gotten rid of the ship's cargo. They've gotten rid of the sails. They've gotten rid of everything they can possibly get rid of to lighten the load on the ship. And, and now they're saying, we're throwing away the food that's left, too. Now, when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. In other words, we're going to be at the mercy of the sea. We're, we're going to try and run it right up there, but, but we're not going to, to be able to steer this thing. We're just going to try and set it on that course and cut everything loose and believe that we're going to make it to that place. Then, casting the foresail to the wind... They made for the beach. So they've got that, that only that little foresail in the front of the ship is there. And so they're going to use that to try and get there. They're going to pick up that wind and then try and get in there. And it's going to move faster because they've gotten rid of the anchors and everything else that would slow down the progress of the ship. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And if you've ever seen any kind of video of something that's run aground like that, you, you, what you'll recognize is because it can't go anywhere and the ship is stuck, now the waves are going to batter that part of the ship that is still floating freely. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape, because an escaped prisoner meant you would die because you were there to guard them and to make sure that they got to where they were going. And if they didn't get there, it's going to fall on you. <clears throat> so they, they figured they'd kill them rather than die themselves. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. 
he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and make for the first and make for the land. So he's willing to trust the. I mean, they don't have many options. Let's put it that way. You've got to make for the land, or you're going to die at sea. It's going to be one or the other. So, and then for the rest of them, the ones who couldn't swim, to rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was, they were all brought safely to land. So they listened to Paul. They believed because the example that he set of keeping his mind while everybody else around him was losing theirs. And he brought clarity to what to do. And he brought them to places where they could have the faith that Paul had in order to get to that place of safety. They began to trust the man of God because he didn't lose his mind. And that's a critical thing for us to remember always is, 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 is that we need to, to make sure that we stand firm in the idea that this life isn't all there is. And so we can't lose our minds when everything around us spins into chaos. We have to keep our faith and to walk as those who have faith in, other, in order that others can see it and know that there's a different way to live.